Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We return to the book of Acts and our exposition, verse by verse, to the 14th chapter. And if you would turn in your Bibles to chapter 14, we'll take verses 1 through 7. And we will stand for the reading of God's word. Would you please stand? I don't know when to ask you to stand because I don't hear the pages ruffling. And I don't know if I'm deep or if uh, you guys are already there. So, beginning at verse 1 through verse 7. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. And so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But believing Jews, uh, pardon me, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Please be seated. Tireless Opposition is the title of this morning's consideration And when, speaking of consideration, when I consider Paul's life, which is summarized in the 11th chapter of his 2nd Corinthian letter, when I consider that Paul never allowed his moods to get the best of him, no matter what was going on, no matter what prayers were not granted, regardless of the physical pain he endured, regardless of the emotional setbacks, the, the opposition, the tireless opposition. He just kept moving forward. He was an unstoppable man. And uh, I don't know that now at this point for me in ministry that it's encouraging as much as it is edifying. There's a little difference between the two. I think the way I'm using it at least, you know, you're encouraged as an emotional element to it. But you're edified. You're just built up. You don't have to. You don't care about the emotions. You do what you have to do. And without that, uh, the opposition, I think, will overrun you. It will get the better of you. So there is something to be said about persevering and enduring according to the Scripture and not according to some carnal energy that one has tapped into. And this occupies much of our uh, thoughts as Christians as we go about serving God. Well, let's look at, uh, well, before we go to verse 1, Just to set it up, God had equipped his servants, called them, appointed them for this. He has equipped all of his servants with truth through the scripture that we have to tell God's side of the story to mankind about life, about creation. And his side of the story meets with incessant resistance from every quarter. I don't know of anywhere where the word of God is preached and everything is always wonderful. Uh, There's always opposition. And uh, there always will be until he returns. And thus we've been given the the Holy Spirit 
to somewhat level the playing field. But it's, it's going to be painful no matter what. Maybe you're in school. Maybe you're a teen and you're in school. You're meeting with opposition, but are you yet sensitive to the spirit enough to know that these are spiritual things? Or are you too self-absorbed, which is not a criticism because when you're a youth, you know, you still have to learn so much. Uh, learning that doesn't stop. Are you sensitive enough to know these things are spiritual? They involve sin. They involve the fallen nature. They involve the world and its culture and its influences. These things involve a very real enemy we know as Satan, who is a slanderer. He lies and he attacks people. He is an accuser of the brethren. And when we're conscious of these things, uh, it gives more meaning and purpose to what we're supposed to be doing with our lives, and that is tell people in the world about God's kingdom and to remind the Christians that we are to be unmarked by the world. James put it this way, keep oneself unspotted from the world. Ask yourselves, has the world left its marks on you? I don't mean sin and trouble and Life, that will leave marks on all of us. But has the influence of the world left its marks on you? Are you stained and spotted? And, uh, you know, it is easy to bear on our bodies the marks of the world. It happens so quickly. Paul boasted that he bore on his body the marks of Christ. And that sets the bar. That's the standard. That's what we want. If I'm going to suffer... And I am going to in life. May it be for the kingdom. <clears throat> May it have the Lord's approval upon it. This, uh, this is doable in scripture. It requires that we heed God's word. Paul wrote to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. That's the things that Paul was teaching him. And the things that Paul taught was what the other apostles were teaching also. And it was also what matched what the prophets were speaking in the scriptures. And so he says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. And then he adds, continue in them. Ask yourself as a Christian, am I heeding? Am I listening and looking to act upon what I've been taught? Do I have a doctrine? Do I understand what I believe? Because I believe it. Not because I read it and that's why I believe it. Maybe you did read it and it helped you to understand. But I believe because of my relationship with the Lord. I'll quote Tozer who puts it in a different way and I think very wonderfully. But first I have some other scripture verses. It is doable through scripture to be unspotted from the world to the point where the tail is wet, not wagging the dog. And to have confidence in pastoral teaching. That is a big part of our faith. First uh, Timothy again. Paul says, if you instruct the brethren, oh, that would be you. In these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. We'll get to Titus at some point, I think, this morning and how much Paul loved Titus. Paul, that man was so valuable to Paul that he, Paul couldn't finish ministry because he had to find out how Titus was. And that excites me, because that, that uh, human element coming off the pages, I identify with very quickly. 
The Bible means very much to me because it's very real and it has something to do with my life and my future. But <coughs> I fear that many of us are too um, spotted by the world because we lose sight of what the Bible says and we lose confidence in what the Bible says because we take hits. He again writes to Timothy, that there will be those in the church that will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They want their ears tickled. They'll still be at church goers. They're going to find a church that will tickle their ears. And to do that, to have your ears tickled, all you need to do is withhold the whole counsel of God. If you give the whole counsel, the ears won't be tickled. The heart will be targeted. You will be challenged. This is an interesting thing Tozer writes in Knowledge of the Holy. He says, we shall not seek to understand in order that we may believe. You see, that's what this guy used to do all the time. He'd say something and make you just stop right there and think about that. So I have to reread it. We shall not, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> we shall not seek to understand in order that we may believe, but to believe in order that we may understand. Hence, we shall not seek for proof that God is wise. The unbelieving mind would not be convinced by any proof, and the worshiping heart needs none. It's quite profound. He's, he's, he's tying the Christian into a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done according to the Scriptures. I, I, I prefer the, over the word Trinity, which, okay, it's not in the Bible. The teaching is certainly there. There's another word the Bible uses when it speaks of the Trinity, the Godhead. And to me, it is the beloved Godhead. I don't want to make it sound like to me, not you. But to it's just, you know, I was reading, uh, coming across that scripture verse a few weeks ago, and I thought, you know, the Godhead is the beloved Godhead. There is, it's not just the sovereign God looking to rule over creation. He is, God is love. And it is a robust love. It is a love that tells me, you don't have to worry about a lot of things because I took care of them on a place called the skull. Golgotha, Calvary. Yeah, I, I love you. And I do default to that in my thoughts when things get thick, when I am disappointed with life, when I feel like life has trapped me, where I'm forced to be where I don't want to be. And then I think about the word of God. And then, not only is there this need for confidence in pastoral teaching, to beware of becoming spotted by the world, of understanding that doctrine is doable, but there is also this need to share the faith. And again, if you cannot, for whatever reason, you can pray for those who can. Paul said this to Philemon, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. It's so simple. He says, he doesn't say, I need you to go down and get 500 reference books and 200 commentaries and read them all and uh, for a few books on how to share your faith. He just simply says that the sharing of your faith, what you believe, share that. And he connects it. He says it's going to be effective by you understanding that every good thing in you comes from Christ because the God of the universe is with you. The Bible is just so special. Paul and Barnabas 
They were unspotted. They heeded God's word. They were nourished and they shared their faith. And they did not, at least we have no evidence, of moods getting the best of them. They brought their perfect message to an imperfect world of people. They were tireless also in spite of the violent opposition that was uh, throughout chapter 14. It's this opposition to them, and it gets very violent. Paul even gets stoned. Anyway, now we go to verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. So they traveled about 80 miles in a very hilly terrain from Antioch, Pisidia, where they were put out of the city for preaching the gospel successfully, and they come to Iconium. This is in the region. It's, it's, it's in the uh, Lyconia. I'm messing with these words. Iconium is in Lyconia, which is part of Galatia. And that's important because Paul is establishing churches in this region. And there are going to be others that will come behind him to undo his work. Not only to, to establish a church means to love the people. It means to establish relationships with them. It means to have a genuine care for them. It means you fret when they fret. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a real thing going on there. It's not robotics. And uh, these very Christians whom he loved so much, and he points out how they once loved him. He said, you would have given your eyes for me uh, to, to, to make life better for me. They're going to drift and he's going to write that Galatian letter. And it is a different letter from all of his others. It is very, very you know, it's a discipline upon them. Well, anyway, uh, this is the beginning of the Galatian uh, ministry of Paul. As you move deeper into Galatia, you move further away from Roman law. And that means there was more mob rule. This will explain why he gets stoned in this region and the authorities are really not much, have nothing to do with it. The mob just stones him, uh, try to kill him. And so it's good to understand it as they're moving forward with the gospel, they're going into regions where no one has taken the gospel before. It says here in verse 1 that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, Luke is still writing... Um, the pronoun indicates he's not yet joined them. They went. It's not we. That will come later. But he's in a, they're in a Jewish neighborhood in a predominantly Gentile town. And Satan will get to uh, have these two become allies against the gospel. Paul always tried beginning the message in the synagogues. And there's a reason for that. Now, if you're bored with this, you have to, maybe this will help. If you understand why they did the things they did and got the results they got, maybe you can mimic those or imitate their strategies or at least pay attention that there needs to be logic when you go out and serve the Lord and not just an emotional reaction to your surrounding circumstances. The reason why they go to the synagogues is the Jews already knew the scriptures. The apostles did not have to run through, well, this is who Isaiah is, and this is what prophecy is, and this is what Genesis is. They didn't have to do all that. 
the Jews and the Gentiles that were proselytes or Gentiles attending the synagogues, they knew these things. So when Paul quotes Isaiah in pointing out that Christ is Messiah according to the prophets, according to the scriptures, it was so much easier to establish converts and churches that way than to go straight to the Gentiles and start from the beginning. Because they, well, well, who's Isaiah? I mean, where did he come from? Why should we listen to him? Where are these writings? And so this is very a, a tactical, a wise tactical move to start at the synagogue. <coughs> You'll be going to get some of that this morning. I'm sorry. I can't help that. Anyway, uh, but I'm not going to let that mood get the best of me, if I can. Uh, so converting the Jew first. He can go right out with converted Jews and Gentiles who were under in Judaism. He could go right out and share that Christianity and Judaism are irreconcilable in doctrine. And yet Christianity comes out of Judaism. And this is uh, to what we believe to this day. Romans chapter 9, he says, Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And so he's just saying, they understand the Old Testament. They have a Bible. There was no New Testament Bible yet. It's evolving. Verse, he continues, and so spoke with the great, I mean, verse 1, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of the Greeks, believed. So now he's, he's getting success. He's got the converts from both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, again, these Gentiles are Gentiles that were in the Jewish synagogues. He's not yet expanded out. It will, it will come. Verse 2, but the believing Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Pardon me, I did that again. I did it in the reading and I did it again. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Uh, this is an, is an important distinction between the believing Jews and the non-Jews, uh, the Gentiles that are there. Jeremiah says this about his own people who had the Bible. And this should make every Christian understand it's not enough to have the Bible. You have to have the Bible, but there's more to Christianity than just having the book. And Jeremiah says this, the priest did not say, where is Yahweh? And those who handle the law, that would be the scripture, did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Jeremiah was a priest by birth. And here he is saying, you know, the priest and the leaders, they don't care about God's word. They have it. They're doing their own thing, contrary to God's word. And so here in verse 2, Paul says that these unbelieving Jews, remember, Paul is a Jew, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Well, the negative, the cowardly, the critical, the faithless people can infect good people. This is the story of Numbers chapter 13, where two of the spies said, we can take these giants. I'm no grasshopper. You might be. I'm not. We can beat them. But the other ten influenced the people to not trust God. 
And this is something that is, uh, you know, it's not like, well, I'm glad those days are done with. We don't have to worry about that. And not so. Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. These were supposed to be the religious Bible teachers of their day. If you challenge one of these scribes, somebody would say to you, who are you, fishermen? How dare you challenge a scribe, teacher, so-and-so? Who are you to say that he's wrong? And then you countered with, well, the scripture says this. And, you know, it would come down to the person would either believe in the Bible or or go with uh, the authority. Anyway, Jesus continues, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Well, you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Well, that's what we're seeing here. The unbelieving Jews stirring up the Gentiles, poisoning their minds against the brethren. Whose fault? Whose fault? Who is at fault for letting their mind be poisoned? This is such a repeated practice of Satan because it works so well. It works so well in churches. He doesn't have to do it at the saloon. He does it in the churches. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. It's powerful preaching, is it not? It's coming from the God of the universe. Saying, you've got this religious practice that I really can't stand. I know of churchgoers who poison the minds against other churchgoers in the same church. Luke 17, it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they come. And God in Proverbs speaks about the things he hates. He says, one, God hates one who sows discord amongst the brethren. I've read these verses so many times in the past, I, would, I used to think they were silver bullets. I would think you'd read them and they'd take down anybody who was doing this, and the person would say, you know what, I'm going to stop doing this. That verse applies to me. <laughs> but that has not been the case. Verse 3. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Uh, here, well, here Paul is, is, they're going to leave, of course. So, well, they're staying there to fight. They left Antioch. They were put out, and they arrive here. Once they hear that there are death threats against them here, they're going to leave here also. Later, Paul will remain in Ephesus because the fruit of the Spirit, there was this move. Well, I'll just read it, 1 Corinthians 16. He tells them, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So what does this have to do with us? Well, the Lord was telling Paul, I'm doing something here in Ephesus. Don't leave in spite of the opposition, the tireless opposition. Stay there. However, at Troas, he will depart in spite of the work of the Lord because of his love for Titus. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord... I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. He's looking for Titus. I mean, you just got to love. He's just like, Lord, I love you. You know, I'll do your work. but I've got, I can't concentrate. I can't function like this. I don't, there's no rebuke by the Lord. God just kept using this man, kept pouring into him. 
So much so, God takes this moment in Paul's life and has people preach on it like I'm doing right now. Paul had been worried sick over the safety of a beloved brother in the ministry. In 2 Corinthians, he writes in chapter 7, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. I think it's beautiful. I think I want this in my life. To love somebody enough to be, you know, really concerned and, 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 and serving with them. Just the whole story, the whole package. And he was a man led by God. He knew to stay here in Iconium and minister. He knew to stay in Ephesus. And he also knew that God would allow him to leave Troas because of love. Because Titus was that important of a person. And that makes me say to myself, am I a Titus? Am I that valuable? Where... It would be such a loss, a setback to the ministry if, if I were somehow removed. And, and these things, you know, again, the Bible speaks to us like this. He continues in verse 3, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. Well, he's speaking boldly in the Lord, but he's making enemies while he's speaking. Not all of them. Many of them were becoming believers. But others, were, they were daggers were you know, forming in their eyes against Paul. While, while preaching. While preaching Jesus is their Messiah. That he was crucified on the cross in accordance with Isaiah 53. That he rose again on behalf of mankind. Not only the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Now, it's not all laid out that way every single time, but that this is overall the message they were preaching. And they made enemies for it. Here's a Bible verse that needs no commentary in the New Testament, and yet still has to be defended for some reason against Christians. There are several of them like this. And I say this because part of maturing with Scripture includes... Thinking for yourself. So you come to church and you hear, well, let's pick another pastor who you might disagree with. You come to church, you hear a pastor say something, and you don't like it. And you go and you read what somebody else says about that verse, and you like that. That's not enough to settle it. You have to still come to, but what do I think? What do I think is being said based on their words and my thoughts? And here's the verse. 1 Timothy 2.4, speaking of God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You need any commentary on that? Is anybody here say, oh, I don't know what that means. I'll, I'll reread it. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants everyone saved. That's what God wants. Amen. Then why do we have people in Christianity tell you that's not what God wants? So this is the so how do you settle this? You have to ask yourself, what does it say? What does that verse say to me? I don't want somebody to come and infect my individual ability to think. You get a pastor that says you need to think like I think. Again, let's use somebody other pastor. This would be good for you if you just thought like it. It'd be good for you if everybody thought like I thought, drove like I drove, wore what I wore. It's a messed up planet. But anyway, coming back to this, uh, speaking boldly in the Lord 
who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. That's what I'm trying to say. That's why I bring that verse up to you to tell you the word of God and its grace. Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Well, Moses and Aaron did this, Exodus chapter 3, before Pharaoh and Aaron, uh, before the Jews. And Aaron spoke all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moses. Then he, that would be Moses, did signs in the sight of the people. Because they, you know, they, they didn't want to believe Moses. Moses got in big trouble by listening to God. And Moses came back and told God that. And God does not say, hmm. God just says, yeah, we'll go do this now. And just like, well, wait a minute. Let's settle this thing. You know, that, that, you can't do that with God. He is God. And once we realize that, we're, we're liberated. Anyway, um, we're in the age of faith. We're not in the age of miracles. Uh, miracles may still be granted, but they're not widespread. And you've heard me say these things before. The signs and wonders may be granted, but they're not guaranteed. And if you behave as though they're guaranteed, you're going to be pretty upset a lot of times. Uh, they're going to mess your theology up. Faith is now where the Holy Spirit puts his emphasis because now we have the Bible, the New Testament Bible I'm talking about. So my answer to why don't we see these signs and wonders accompanying preaching of the word today? And the answer is, they did not have the New Testament Bible. They needed a little help. The Bible, as I mentioned, New Testament was evolving. Today, we have the full canon. Even if you take different translations that differ, because they're different translations, the message is not lost. You won't get an NIV Bible, which I would not recommend. But if you got it, I, I still, you know, you're still a Christian. I mean, <laughs> you're going to hell because you have the NIV. Uh, I'm not saying anything like that. But you, you won't lose any of the doctrine. It can create other problems, but not, not serious enough to say, I don't know what the Bible is saying. Uh, so uh, the, it's the, it comes to the Word of God. And I'm going to back this up, hopefully, with Scripture. Luke chapter 16. But he, Jesus, said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. He's saying, if the Bible doesn't do it, if the, that's what Tozer was saying about we, we want to understand because we already believe, not help us understand so we can believe. It's the other way around. Faith. Faith precedes. And so here, here Jesus is saying, if they're not listening to the Bible, you can do all the miracles you want to do. It won't count. And, and to me, this is just like so easy to understand. Paul and Barnabas did not believe the gifts of ended with Elijah. They did as God told them. Now in Acts 26, we read, Paul said, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Or not? He doesn't say that part. I'm adding that part. Why should it be thought incredible to you if God doesn't raise the dead? If he doesn't do a miracle, why should that be incredible? We are believers because of God who says, because of who God says he is. And signs and wonders are not always essential to the work of God. John chapter 10. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true. John did no miracles. John the Baptist, and you know the Lord had high opinion of John. 
So let's not get tripped up when we read about signs and wonders in the Scripture and we don't see them like they did in those days. Now, some might come along and say, well, it's because we don't have the faith. I disagree with that. I don't think we are, you know, James said Elijah was a man just like us, like, just like passion, struggled with what we struggled with. Uh, I, I think that the explanation I gave you was, for me, it's the right one, and it should be for you too. Anyway, uh, certainly not something to argue over. God, he heals one, and he may pass by another one, and that indicates that God's perfect prerogatives are in place. Lazarus of Bethany was risen from the dead only to die another day. Lazarus the beggar died once, even covered with sores, and made it into glory. In the end, God is perfect in all his ways. Verse 4, But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles. Well, Christ brings division uh, between himself and everything contrary to him, because he's God the Son. Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. You've got to have a lot of authority to be able to make a claim like that. What if I said that? Don't think I came to bring peace. Who do you think you are? Christ could say it. He was worthy. The sword that divides is God's word, his truth. That's what it comes down to. And he is sometimes hated for it to this day. Not necessarily with physical violence. Again, Jeremiah the prophet. This is what Jeremiah the prophet said because he was preaching God's word. His own people were turning. His own family was turning against him. He was persecuted for standing up and saying, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what God wants. And here's why I'm saying that. He was able to look at a verse and say, I know what that, believe, but that means. And when they said, no, it doesn't, he didn't back down. And because of this, the moods got the best of him. And he said, woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest, nor have men lent to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. So I'm tired of this. This tireless opposition to logic, to truth, to love, to fact. I'm tired of it. And he's not supposed to be. And he writes it down to tell us, this is where I was that day. This is how down in the dumps I was over serving God and standing up for truth. He writes it down so we could read it and say, okay, I'm not the only one. But that does not mean that I want to have this reaction. I want to have the reaction that Paul and Barnabas had. And what is that? No record of the moods getting the best of them. That's what I want. Now, in private, the moods, you know, that's, you, that's where you duke it out. And then you get out in public and you've, you've put that beast in its, in its place. Normally, the word apostles refers to the twelve. But here, it refers to Paul and Barnabas. Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ and also an apostle of the church at Antioch, Syria. Barnabas was only an apostle of the church at Antioch, not an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
How do we know? Well, there's only 13 men that have been handpicked by Jesus Christ and appointed to be sent out with great authority of Christ. And Judas forfeited his role. Matthias was appointed by apostles, not by Jesus Christ. And Christ did not object, because what's he supposed to do? Make Matthias feel bad? I mean, no, Matthias, you're not going to be. I mean, Lord, this is fine. I just have another one. Uh, so my, my point is, uh, the word apostles means one who is sent out. What the word does not tell us, and the context has to, is who sent them out. And uh, so you have one sent out by the church, which is still Christ, but then you have the others that are hand-picked. Uh, anyway, verse 5, And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, we pause there mid-sentence, notice the three categories mentioned here. Jews, Gentiles, apostles. <laughs> because, you know, Barnabas and Paul, they were Jews, but they are remembered as being God's people in distinction to everybody else, distinct from everybody else. Some of the Gentiles and Jews united with Christ, and those then there were those that were against him, same as it was in the city they just left, 80 miles to the west. The Jews in this synagogue, they did not divide over the identity of God. They divided over how God fulfills prophecy. That is pretty interesting because they really had no grounds to disagree with what Paul was preaching. At Iconium, anti Jesus Jews and Gentiles sowed seeds of discord to stop the message of the cross. We should never, ever be surprised by opposition to the gospel, no matter where it comes from. It's always the devil meddling. And I think sometimes we are surprised. But maybe even worse is not only are we surprised, we're stopped. We're halted. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. You're supposed to resist corruption. You're supposed to go against those things that rot. And we do that by standing up for our faith. And I think it is perfectly fair to say to an unbeliever, you might have a double standard where you think you can come in here and curse and kick up a storm and tell me about your night out fornicating and whatever it is. But you think I, as a Christian now, have no right to tell you that I went to church and that I disagree with a lot of things that the culture is doing. See, that's a double standard. And that's a double standard you may follow, but not me. Well, that kind of stuff is what led to the the persecution of Paul and Barnabas. They were saying, well, you got your double standard, but we're going to keep preaching. You're fine. You don't want us preaching in your synagogue. We'll preach over here. And that is when this violent plan was launched against them. Uh, and, of course, they're going to get wind of this and uh, get out of the city. And so verse 5 tells us, now, when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to abuse and stone them. This isn't Roman rule here, because the Roman rule, of course, you had a whole court system, you know, or even though it was corrupt too, sometime, time. Verse 6, uh, well, I'm pause here one more time and comment on verse 5. The, the indication that the Jews were leading this is the method of stoning. That was what the Jews did to heretics. 
And uh, that's just a historical note. It's not a Jew-Gentile thing. It's a sinner thing. Verse 6, They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. Well, Jesus taught, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another city. Matthew 10, 23. And, and again, being led by the Lord. Sometimes you stand your ground. Sometimes it's best you move on. Unbeknownst to the apostles here, they are jumping out of the frying pan into the fire. They're not going to be stoned in Iconium. It's when they get to Lystra. They will be, well, Paul will be. And so they're going to flee and their persecutors will catch up with them. And the, the, the hatred against them was so intense that you had Jews coming from 80 miles from Antioch, Pisidia to Iconium and then another 20 miles with Jews from the two now following them to Lystra, and then they will stir up, which is a whole another story next chapter, where at one moment the, the unbelievers are trying to worship Paul and Barnabas, and in the next minute they are stoning them. Uh, it's just, you know, people, right? Uh, <laughs> glad I'm not one. Uh, anyway, how, do you, how would you feel if when you preached you caused riots? When you preached, you, you brought death threats against you for preaching what you knew was true. Would you, would you say to yourself, did God really call me to this? Am, am I just doing this on my own strength? I mean, of course you would, have to, you would have questions unless you were grounded in the Scripture and in the Spirit. Verse 7, and they were preaching the gospel there. So they looked for another place to go preach and share. And that's what they did. 1 Corinthians, this is, this is, don't lose sight of these things. When it comes to sharing your faith, don't bloat it with doctrines of men. Keep it simple to the scripture. Uh, you know, we're not trying to indoctrinate people. We're trying to introduce them to Jesus Christ through the scripture. So Paul says, and I, brethren, 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, this chronologically, has not yet happened. He has not yet gotten to Corinth. But I'm bringing up Corinth to demonstrate the method of the first Christians as being the right way. And God preserved it because it, he wants us to follow these patterns. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of the wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, I kept the message simple. I wasn't coming there to impress you. I was just coming to deliver to you the truth of Christ. And I kept it there. I didn't bring it what a rabbi this said and pastor that said. I'm telling you what the Bible says. And that's what he shared. And there are certain little twists and turns we have to make from time to time. But overall, no. When... When's the last time you met a babe in Christ? I have not met one in a long time. Are people still getting saved? Are they getting saved in other churches and not here? Um, that would be not good for me. But, I mean, the sharing of the faith to get people to believe in Christ. You're witnesses. We tell what we saw. We tell what's happened. What, what we are part of in some, some form. And again, so you'll meet with opposition from this from some people. Anyway, persecution helps spread the gospel. 
No matter how wise the man or woman you admire is, if they deviate from the basics, then you do not have to continue. Uh, you don't have to join, join them. It doesn't mean they're evil or anything like that. I'll close with this verse. 1 Corinthians 2, chapter 4. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What is the power of God to me? It is that day when he saved me. I still remember it, and most of you probably do too. It is that day when I realized that Jesus is Lord. That's power. Because nothing has been able to shake me from that. There have been many confusing things, disappointing things, but nothing has been able to shake me from that moment that I met Jesus. That is the power of the gospel. There's nothing like it anywhere else. Let's pray. Our Father, perhaps there's someone listening who does not know the power of your salvation, the power of your presence, the reality of your being. <clears throat> Perhaps there is someone listening, watching, present, not, has not opened their heart to you. Well, if you invite them in your scripture to come to you, then does it not make perfect sense that we invite them also to come to you? Every chance we get. If you never opened your heart to Jesus, you have a chance right now to do it. All you need to do is admit that He is Lord, that you have broken His commandments, and that you are a sinner, and recognize that it is for sinners He died. He took the punishment in the place of sinners so that we could stand before God and not receive punishment for our sin, but forgiveness instead. He has made peace between those who come to him and God. And if you would like that peace, you have to come of your own free will. God is not going to put anything to your head to force you to come to him. He's going to invite you. And he does. He's doing it right now through me. If you would like to come to Christ, his Holy Spirit already at work in your heart, then confess that you are a sinner. Confess that Christ is the only source of salvation. Open your heart to him and give your life to him right now. And now, Father, if anybody would do this this morning, may they not be ashamed that they've given their life to you. In these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.